The Holy Gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ according to Luke. That very hour some Pharisees came and said to Jesus, Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. He said to them, Go and tell that fox for me. Listen, I'm casting out demons and performing cures today and tomorrow, and on the third day I finish my work. Yet today, tomorrow, and the next day, I must be on my way, because it is impossible for a prophet to be killed outside of Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often have I desired to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brew under her wings, and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you. And I tell you, you will not see me until the time comes when you say, Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. This is the gospel of the Lord. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Well, I would say, and I think most of us can agree, that enough has been said about how divided this nation and our communities, our towns, feel these days. Red versus blue, black versus white, mass versus no mass. The examples feel like they go on and on forever, and it's pretty exhausting. We might think to ourselves that we might be able to escape these divisions by making ourselves more insulated, perhaps spending more time with family and friends, But Thanksgiving tables and a few too many glasses of wine can bring down the acts of disagreement and vehemence with incredible pain upon any relationship. But nothing seems more divisive in this world that we're all trying to navigate through than the topic of my lower back. I blew my back out a few weeks ago, and when I either had to explain my absence for something or I was seen walking gingerly across the road, I was instantly, and I will say kindly, bombarded with hot takes one after another about what I should and what I shouldn't do. I thought that I'd found the mountaintop of opinions and judgments when I first got a dog, and I couldn't walk up and down the downtown mall without getting about 15 different tips on what the right kind of leash is for me to be walking my dog, or who I should uh, sign up for puppy behavior classes with. And then I learned that it gets worse when Courtney and I had a child. And then we entered into the world of tiger moms versus dragon moms, and attachment versus detachment parenting, and an overflowing shelf of books that were kindly lent to us, and we kindly read as a manifesto of everything that we were doing absolutely wrong. But now my back hurts. And I've mentioned the word chiropractor in public. And nothing, absolutely nothing, could have prepared me for the intensity and the volume of the guidance and the counsel that I have been receiving over these past two weeks. And I truly appreciate the advice. I'm, I'm very aware that there are people in this church who have given me advice these last two weeks. I do appreciate it. I do appreciate it. Uh, it does seem like it's coming from a good place. I trust that that's true. But I had no idea how strongly entrenched folks were 
on one side or the other in this great war that seems to be waging between physical therapists and chiropractors. In the end, regardless of whether our back hurts or not, we can't escape the divisiveness of humanity that's boiling over around us or within us. Even our own hearts, our inner lives, are full of just as much division as the divisions we see out in the rest of the world, from those sort of common feelings of second-guessing ourselves to the deeper senses that we get of some sort of great chasm being there between what and where we want our lives to be and to look like and who and where we actually are. With all of these divisions that consume us, there's always this implication hanging overhead that there's one path or there's one side that's absolutely right and there's one that is absolutely wrong. And we either make a promise to stay where we are and stand for this image or that version of justice or whatever the topic at hand might be, or we make a promise to ourselves that we'll progress and that we'll become that kind of a person or we'll stop being this kind of a person. In today's reading from Genesis, Abram is impatiently waiting for the great chasm of childlessness in his own life to be overcome. And despite the fact that his vision of his future, of a future with a family, uh, is one that he's still waiting for, and it's one that's been promised to him by God himself, Abram has doubts. And like every human who has ever lived, Abram has a strong desire to take things into his own hands. He still doesn't have any offspring, but God says to him that he's given him a promise, and God doesn't make promises that God doesn't keep. So God takes Abram outside, like Dave just said in the children's sermon, says, look toward heaven and count the stars if you're able to count them. Then he said to him, so shall your descendants be. And Abram believed the Lord, and the Lord reckoned it to him as righteousness. This is undoubtedly, actually, one of the most influential passages throughout all of Scripture. St. Paul wrestles with this idea of righteousness throughout the entire book of Romans. And Martin Luther himself, the great reformer, his entire view of our relationship with God, the entire movement of the Reformation, and we might even say the modern world as we know it today, shifted after he sat with this phrase in a German monastery and reflected on this passage's powerful implication that righteousness has been given to us as a gift because and only because of our faith in the Lord and what the Lord has done and what the Lord has promised to us. For many of us, including Martin Luther himself, it's difficult to think of the word righteousness without it being directly attached to our own character, our own actions, and the specific lives that we live and project out into the world and then present to God on the final judgment day. It's ingrained in our minds to think of righteousness or a righteous person as someone who has made the right choices and let us know about the right choices that they've made, who lives the right kind of life. And as St. Paul says, this is not too dissimilar from the law being written on our hearts, uh, this knowledge that we know 
or desire to be a righteous person. But the result of this is that, more often than not, what we do is act in a self-righteous way, trying to project our righteous identities out into the world for fear that we might be perceived to be someone on the wrong side of any one of these great social divisions and landmines. The only problem is that the Bible tells us and our lives reveal to us over and over again that we actually aren't righteous people, that no one is righteous, no, not one, as the Bible says. We are born into this world with a desire and a longing to be righteous. We know that there are things in our lives and in this world that shouldn't be the way that they are. Once again, we end up feeling stuck and divided off against the righteous person we want to be, the righteous world we want to live in, and the person we actually know ourselves to be. Abram believed the Lord, and the Lord reckoned it to him as righteousness. Thankfully, what God sees as righteousness is not what we see it to be. What God sees as righteousness as the right way of being in this world and relationship to each other and to God, it's not an image of a proud, self-righteous man or woman thanking God that they have all the right bumper stickers on the back of their car or thanking God that they're not like those unrighteous sinners over there. What God actually sees as righteousness is the lives of people like you and me, people who are fundamentally at the end of their ropes, people who have tried to take things into their own hands and time after time come up empty-handed and disappointed people who are very truly and very painfully unrighteous and yet have looked upon the promise God has made to us with faith and hope and trust, the promise that God is the one who made us, that God is the one who cares for us, and that God will redeem and reconcile and save us. You might have seen or heard of this article written last week in the New York Times by Emma Camp. She's a fourth-year student at UVA. And she wrote this article on what is perhaps the biggest stage that there is in modern media uh, to say this, to, to make these comments about a divisive culture on campus here in Charlottesville and on campuses throughout the entire country. She says that the expectations of conformity to one particular version of righteousness have gotten so bad and so intense for everyone, both for liberals like herself and for her conservative friend as well, that they no longer feel safe voicing their opinions. She writes, a friend lowers her voice to lament the ostracizing of a student who said something very well-meaning but perhaps mildly offensive during a student's club diversity training. Another friend shuts his bedroom door when I mention a lecture defending Thomas Jefferson from contemporary criticism. His roommate might hear us, he explains. I went to college to learn from my professors and peers. I welcomed an environment that champions intellectual diversity and rigorous disagreement. 
Instead, my college experience has been defied by strict ideological conformity. Students of all political persuasions hold back in classroom discussions and friendly conversations on social media from saying what we really think. Even as a liberal, I sometimes feel afraid to fully speak my mind. You don't have to be a college student to hear that and I think deeply relate to that. You just have to have been in some kind of a relationship or once gone on the internet over the past five or ten years to know about this divisiveness that she's talking about. In this story of a 21-year-old in our own town going to the New York Times and telling us that she doesn't feel safe voicing her own opinions because they might not fit neatly within the echo chamber of her classroom or campus and his particular version of righteousness, well, it's just heartbreaking. But it's not surprising. She herself quotes from students and faculty all over the country experiencing similar things. If you're not on our side, then you're on the wrong side, and there's no room for conversation, no room for debate, and certainly, and most sadly, no room for relationship. Well, it turns out that there is only one true version of righteousness, but it's God's version of righteousness and not ours, and that's really good news. Because according to God, we have been given righteousness through faith in God, in the midst of our unrighteous lives, in the midst of being on the wrong side of this issue or that issue, in the midst of our failed expectations and unkept promises. What we need and what we are given is grace and mercy. Thankfully, God does keep his promises, even and especially when we don't keep ours. Thankfully, his gift to us is not something that can ever be taken away from us, regardless of where we might fall in any social, political, or deeply personal divide that we find ourselves in. Towards the end of this passage from Genesis that Philip read a few moments ago, after God has reminded Abram that he has been given a divine promise of provision and grace, God says to him, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat, three years old, a ram, three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Then Abram brought him all these things and cut them in two, laying each half over against the other. This incredibly graphic image of carcasses spread around in a circle with blood scattering all over the ground. This is what it looked like to make a covenant in the ancient Near East. And unlike a contract which can be broken, a covenant was an unbreakable union that was often made by killing and cutting animals in half like this and then having both parties walk through the bloody scene of these carcasses divided against themselves. The deal was cut in this specific way to symbolize a kind of binding curse upon each party. If the covenantal terms were not met, the covenant wasn't broken as a contract would be. Instead, it would result in a curse of ultimate division and ultimate death on both parties as they 
became like the bodies cut in half and strewn out upon the ground. In the case of Abram in our passage, the animals were split in half and laid out ready for the two parties entering into the covenant to pass through. But then perhaps overcome by the immensity of entering into a covenant with God, Abram understandably fell into a deep and dark sleep. And he didn't pass through the bodies. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and all the people of God when he himself and he alone passed through those bodies. On that day, God's promise of blessing, favor, and forgiveness, no matter what, was made. On that day, the curse fell upon God himself and God alone. On the cross, the curse that we deserve, that we all deserve, fell on Jesus, on God himself, and God alone. The curse for our unrighteousness was taken on by Jesus, and in return, we have received the true righteousness of God. This is the scandal of the gospel. It's the whole gospel message itself, that God keeps his promises even and especially when we don't. That 2,000 years ago, Jesus died for you and died for me, for all of us, right or wrong, friend or foe, across all possible dividing lines. So that today, we all have been brought and put back together as the one true body of Christ. Amen.